Hello, I'm Sumit Bose and welcome to the Net Hero podcast. Today's podcast is all about three quarters of the planet, the oceans. And it's a, a tale of, uh, it's a bit depressing, I'll be honest with you. It's about how our oceans are warming and what can be done about them and, and the consequences of that warming. But um, a little bit more about that uh, later. Now, you may have seen the, the news that's been going on lately, which is all about kind of where we're going in terms of, of this rush back to oil and gas. The facts are very simple. We're facing an absolute mountain of bills coming. Um, the latest research is looking at maybe 2,900, 3,000 pounds for an energy bill come January of next year. We're looking at the possibilities of 180, maybe even two, 200 pence, two pound a litre for diesel and petrol soon. So you can see there's a lot of pressure on pricing. Anything you read in Future Net Zero and Energy Live News will give you the, the, the cost of what's going up. The average cost of filling up a car is now 15% more than it was in March. So we're looking at more and more ramifications from what's happening in Ukraine. And you may have seen a story on uh, Energy Live News with John Kerry, the former uh, US Secretary of State, uh, basically saying that there is no excuses for a rush back to coal now because of what's happening with the Russian invasion in Ukraine. Now, if you actually look what's happening, there is a global rush back to oil and gas, uh, and it's inevitable because as we try and work our way away from unsavory regimes like Putin's, and I'd also say quite a few in the Middle East, let's be honest, then you're going to find people needing to secure supplies up with oil and gas. That being said, you know, there are lots of real positives around kind of this being a short-term fix, which is what I really hope it should be, because you've got to look at where we are in, in the realm of things. And everything is pointing to going back to oil and gas is not going to get us out of this. We have got to invest more in nuclear renewables, battery tech and energy efficiency. I mean, so much more in energy efficiency. So I think we're entering a very, very tricky time for all of us, for all businesses. Businesses are, are looking to ask the government for help. Uh, and you, you'll see that story on, on Energy Live and, and, and on Future Net Zero. But at the same time, larger and larger companies are moving towards investing more in this kind of world of, uh, sort of rising prices. So I feel there's, there, there are hopes ahead of us for a better time. And one of the things that's um, really, I think, been really good is, you know, the construction of material uh, you know, the embedded carbon that people talk about, there's there's a big change in that. So Volvo, for example, has just built uh, some construction material, basically things like diggers and stuff, with uh, fossil-free steel. So steel that's made with hydrogen. And Ellis Hall this week in his carbon column, our head of carbon partnerships, funnily enough, touches on the issue about embedded carbon uh, and how we can start to to look at that. And I think that's going to be the real big thing. You know, we've got to tackle emissions, we've got to tackle energy efficiency. But if we can start to work on the other side of it, so that before we even make our steel and our concrete and all the things, <clears throat> excuse me, that we need for 
our buildings that we start to do that in a cleaner way. I think that will really help us uh, in, in, in the future. And also the other story that's very interesting um, on Future Net Zero is about hydrogen. There is a feeling that while oil and gas prices are going up, hydrogen, particularly green hydrogen, could become the gas source of the future. A research story has shown that the price of hydrogen could be dropping to kind of uh, five euros per kilogram. Now that, that's peanuts really for what hydrogen is. And that suddenly puts it into the sort of price bracket where it can really compete with natural gas. So look, in summary, I think things are tricky without doubt. We all know it, businesses are feeling it, we as individuals are feeling it, but there is hope that there are things transitioning to help us. And it will be, as I keep saying, and I keep saying it, and I think it's fair to say, an uncomfortable probably couple of years, but we will get through this. So that's about it for uh, my little spiel this week. And before I talk about the podcast, just to say the Big Zero show is literally two weeks away. So uh, we are really looking forward to seeing you all there up in Coventry. Uh, make sure you have a look at bigzeroshow.com. Check out the sessions. Make sure you know what you want to see. Uh, we've got lots of networking for you, lots of chance to meet people and discuss things. And we really hope you're going to have a fantastic day. So on to the podcast. And I said at the beginning, it's all about the oceans. They are three quarters of our planet. They are the power behind our climate system. But are they now being affected in a very negative way by our actions? Have a listen to this. Now, I've been a bit of a nerd all my life, obviously, and I loved, well, not loved, I do love paleontology, ancient history, the history of the Earth, geology. And one of the things that's always fascinated me are the oceans and the oceans, the history of the oceans, the fact that we didn't have oceans for quite a lot of part of the, the life of the planet Earth and how much they're part of what are vital parts of our climate system. Now, you've all probably heard about what's going on. We know that the world is warming up. We know about pollution. We know about things like the plastics and, and things like that that we see in our seas. But there's a new report that's come out that says that the oceans could be warming, could be warming at a level that they haven't warmed at for 26,000 years, right? So a long, long, long time, you know, nothing in geological time, but a huge amount for us to think back. So, you know, going back to the beginnings of human sort of civilizations, it hasn't been as warm as that. What does that mean? Is that bad news for us? Is it to do with how much we're producing carbon dioxide? Well, the World Meteorological Organization has looked into this and says it's going to affect things and it's affecting things right now. And it says four, factor, four factors are part of this. Uh, greenhouse gases, a rise in sea levels, lots of heat in the ocean and this acidification. So what does all that mean? Um, is there anything we can do about it? I'm delighted to say on this week's podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Max Dilley, who's the director of the climate program at the WMO. Uh, Max, thank you for joining us. You're joining us from Geneva, which is, I was just saying, a beautiful part of the world. Yes, uh, and it's great to be with you. Can we just explain what the oceans are to start with? Because we, we kind of just think that they're, they're water and, and, and that's it. But the, the, the oceans actually, they're, they're really vital for kind of, the balance of many things, aren't they? Because there are salts in the world, the water, there are gases in the water. So 
what what do the oceans do in, in terms of kind of our, our climatic system? You know, I think it's uh, three-fifths of the planet's surface, so um, they're a very important part of the Earth's system. And among other things that they do, they are um, they transport a lot of heat around the planet. So, uh, for example, in the UK and in, in Switzerland, where I'm based, the temperature is much, much warmer here in general than it would be if we didn't have the Gulf Stream carrying uh, heat up from the Caribbean area yeah. uh, into the North Atlantic. So the oceans modulate uh, the distribution of heat on, on the land surface, and those heat sources also fluctuate. So, for example, uh, people may have heard of El Nino and La Nina. Yeah. Um, these are large uh, variations in the Pacific Ocean temperatures that appear uh, on a quasi-periodic uh, timetable of about five to seven years. I'll come back to that, though. And so uh, when we have an El Nino event, uh, we get a large patch of um, anomalously warm water in the central and eastern Pacific. And this tends to, to warm up the, the entire global average temperature by perhaps a tenth of a degree. Um, in the last uh, two to two and a half years, we have had an anomalously long La Nina, which is the opposite of an El Nino. Uh, La Nina is uh, a, a large pool of, of cold water in the central and eastern Pacific. And that uh, persistence of the La Nina has been enough just to decrease the global average annual temperature by about a tenth of a degree. And it is probably the main reason why we have not had in 2021 um, the warmest average annual global surface temperature on record. That La Nina is just enough to suppress uh, the temperature to keep the upward trend from being a new record. But when that El Nino, uh, sorry, that La Nina goes away, um, we will probably see a, a return, unfortunately, to, to record global temperatures. I want to talk about your research in a moment, but can we just put a bit of history and context, right? So as I said at the beginning, the oceans haven't always been there. And the oceans have been a much higher, much higher levels. They've been lower in some parts. They've been a lot warmer. Isn't this just the natural variation of, 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 the, of the oceans of the planet? You know, if you look at it geologically, if you went back, I think, what is it? Well, if you went back a billion years or something like that, it was a a boiling sea of, of gas and goo. So are the oceans actually doing anything different that they've always done in geological time? Yeah, it's an interesting um, perspective to take going into geological uh, timescales because when you, you go back into geologic time, um, you have uh, things like uh, mass extinctions of almost all life on Earth. Yeah. Things that uh, we wouldn't want to probably personally live through. Um, what we're seeing now is these kinds of geological timescale changes happening on almost an, uh, unfolding, I should say, on an annual basis. So when, um, as you noted in the introduction, when we see ocean uh, pHs or ocean acidification, uh, the pH reaching the lowest that it's been for perhaps 25, 26,000 years, um, that's an extreme. Um, and when we talk about uh, ocean heat content reaching the highest 
point on um, the observational record or sea level reaching the highest point on the observational record. This is a sign that the planet is really changing before our eyes in, in unprecedented ways. So yes, if we go back a million years or even uh, tens of thousands of years, um, there, are, there are conditions uh, that uh, have been very, very consequential for yeah. life on Earth. And, and that's what we're seeing now. And, and that, that's a bit alarming. So, so the, 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 the ocean, you know, my basic chemistry always told me water was seven, right? Neutral, the pH of water. What is seawater? I assume it's always a little bit lower than seven, is it? And if I remember my science, the lower the number, the more acid it is, the higher the number, more alkaline. Correct me if I'm wrong, Max. Yeah, no, that, that's right. The lower the pH, the, the higher the acidity. Um, I don't know actually what the uh, you know the current uh, average value of the ocean pH is right now. But it, what's uh, important is that the 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 sea life um, is very sensitive um, to these kinds of changes. Not just acidity, but uh, acidity is very important. For example, for coral reef formation, which is yeah. very important yeah. for um, or the, the life that depend on coral reefs. The sea life is sensitive to the ocean heat. And in 2021, much of the ocean experienced at least one strong marine heat wave. So um, just as heat waves like what we have been seeing in um, South Asia, for example, recently, and uh, in, in the Western of North America. Yeah, the fires uh, last summer, yeah, I remember. Uh, and the fires and all the things that come with it. Um, those heat waves uh, affect marine life um, in the same way, and you know it suppresses its productivity. And then we have deoxygenization of the ocean, which also um, is uh, threatening to create sort of you know ocean deserts. So um, I'm not an oceanographer, but I, I try to keep on top of the science. And um, I've read oceanographers saying that the only thing you can compare what's going on in the oceans to right now is the period when uh, we saw the extinction of the dinosaurs. So wow. um, these changes are very, very dramatic uh, in the ocean. And they, they have consequences, of course, not just for marine life, but for, for life on land as well. Is it as simple as to say, and, and again, you know, forgive me for making it moronically level because that's kind of where my brain operates, but there's lots of CO2 in the air. We, we're doing it with all our greenhouse gases. That CO2 gets absorbed in the water and becomes sort of, if I remember, carbonic. It, it makes the water more acidic. And that's what's happening. So the, 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 the ocean is just mopping up all the excess greenhouse emissions, which is why it's getting more and more acidic. And that also increases temperature, or have I got that wrong? Yeah, no. So um, I think let's start with the atmosphere and then work our way uh, through it, just as you were doing. So um, the, the big driver of all of this right now, including the global warming and, and the associated climate changes, is the buildup of greenhouse gases that trap heat in the Earth system. Um, and those emissions are, are going into the atmosphere from combustion of fossil fuel, from agriculture, from uh, manufacturing processes, uh, biomass burning, et cetera. And they, they go into the atmosphere, but then the ocean absorbs um, a, a good part of it. I think it's about 26%. So the, what we have in terms of the concentrations of the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere is kind of the balance 
between the what uh, we are emitting anthropogenically and then what the oceans um, and and the biosphere are absorbing. But the oceans also are taking up um, almost 90 or about 90 percent of the heat. So um, this uh, very high ocean heat content that uh, we've experienced, which was a record high in 2021, is really the ocean taking up the heat that's being trapped by the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And right. if it weren't for the ocean's um, heat absorption, wow. um, We'd the, be in real the trouble global otherwise. temperature would, would yeah. be out, off the charts and we would be in real trouble. So um, this is buying us time. But um, we can't assume that the ocean will go on absorbing heat forever at the same rate that it's doing is the first thing. And the second thing, as I mentioned earlier, the, the heating of the ocean has real consequences for the oceans themselves and the, the life within them. So um, that interaction is a very important one and one that uh, we're, we're wondering um, how long it's going to continue. How did you get to this level of it, it's the most acidic in, in 26,000 years? Obviously, we weren't around 26,000 years in this kind of way of measuring the science. So how, how have you done this? How does the WMO predict? Have you just looked at climate models? Is it just kind of looking at data sets or, or how do you work out it's 26,000 years? This is the, the, the most acidic we've been. Yeah, so the values that we have now are the result of ongoing measurements from observing systems. Yeah. So um, the global observing system for climate is far from optimal, but uh, it's certainly um, a much, much more sophisticated observing system than what we had even um, in pre-industrial times, which is where we typically use as a benchmark for yes. um, things yeah. like the global temperature. So, um, you know, we, we moved away from, uh, you know, a few observing stations and, and um, you know, records being taken from ocean voyages and so on to um, satellite observations and a, a much more dense uh, network of surface observing stations and marine obser observations. And so we, we, can, we can pull together a, a much, much more complete picture now about what is happening um, to all of these indicators, um, ocean heat, ocean acidification, global um, surface temperature, um, extreme events, uh, sea ice extent, um, glaciers, all of these things, they're, they're now being observed continually, albeit with, uh, with certainly um, observations that would benefit from more improvement. But when we go back uh, and we talk about 26,000 years ago, um, we're relying on things like sea ice uh, and um, yeah. ocean, um, you know, sediments in the ocean sea bottom that are taken with um, ocean drilling. And then we you know, pull up uh, ice cores or um, sediment cores and examine the composition of the gases and the isotopes that are reported there. And that's how we know um, how we can compare um, contemporary times to these more um, approaching geological timescales. Okay. We are where we are. We've got this heating. We've got this acid. Let's talk about this acidification. Now, I, I was lucky enough to go to the Barrier Reef 20 years ago now, and that's where I learned to scuba dive. And it was a beautiful place then, but it, there, was a, there was a bit of that going on. If the waters become more acid, can the oceans cope? Because they are an ecosystem. Or does it mean just weird things happen, like you get blooms of I don't know algae or you get weird things what what do you think this is, is doing and I know you're probably not a full sort of you know ocean biologist but kind of what 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 sort of things 
do you do you at the WMO sort of think or fear could be going on? Well, um, the acidification has a direct impact on coral reef health um, because uh, the, the reefs um, involve carbon uh, and the acidity, as the name suggests, um, dissolves carbon. So um, the reefs are literally being um, uh, stressed with um, being dissolved by the acidification. But um, you also have, as we've discussed, uh, the heating of the ocean. And these two things together, um, heat and acidity, are very, very detrimental to the coral reefs. And the coral reefs, of course, are, are more than just a, a structure. They're, a, they're the foundation of the whole ecosystem um, with, with fish that live in the reef. And they, they support a, a, a very diverse set of uh, marine species. So um, when we have this kind of stress on the reefs, and uh, there's been um, many reefs now that are simply dying, uh, you know, we, we can see the combined impacts of the heating and the acidification of the oceans. How long the reefs can withstand is, a, is an open question. I mean, they are yeah. um, already um, starting to deteriorate. And unfortunately, um, and this is something that people probably don't appreciate fully enough, when the world wakes up and says, this is a real climate crisis and we have to do something, that's too late. These changes that we're seeing in the ocean are irreversible on centennial to millennial timescales. That means for hundreds to thousands of years. So um, if the current trends um, continue uh, and we, we'll just uh, it will be too late to do anything to save the coral reefs at that point if it's not already. So the main point uh, I think that really needs to be underscored is that something has to be done of a very transformational nature and soon if we're going to avert um, some of these kinds of consequences that we've been discussing. It's natural for us because we just look and we live on land to think about the land, right? So obviously we always look at, you know, if you see a, a, a factory chucking out smoke or a power station, you can really identify that. You drive you know, you walk on down the street and there's cars and they're throwing out their exhaust fumes. But we don't really think about the seas, do we? We, we look at them and we look at them as kind of, you know, pristine, beautiful places. The surface always looks amazing. And, you know, you get on a boat or you sit on the beach and you think this is all great. But it, it, this is sort of silently going on, isn't it? We, we, we're, just, we're just not across it because we don't relate to it as much. Yeah, I mean, um, people who, of course, uh, study um, the oceans and marine ecosystems, or even just people who love the ocean, who spend a lot of time in them, around them or thinking about them, um, realize these things. But uh, I think you're probably right that the average person doesn't give uh, too much thought to them. The ice caps uh, at the poles, uh, the Antarctic and the Arctic are also another example of um, something that uh, for many people who live far away from the high latitudes, um, probably they don't give much thought to, but these are some of the most active um, climate change hotspots on the planet. Um, the Arctic uh, ice uh, at one point in um, mid-July for the first half of July reached uh, the lowest ice extent on record. Uh, it somewhat recovered by September and became only one of the lowest. But um, the, the Arctic ice is, is uh, melting at a rapid pace. Um, in Greenland in 2021, 
Um, there was the first ever recorded rainfall at Summit Station, which is the highest point on the, on the Greenland ice sheet. So, um, you know, when these ice sheets melt, that water goes into the oceans. And that is one of the, the main drivers currently of um, sea level rise. And so, yeah, we don't think about uh, the Arctic ice cap uh, too much, maybe um, for the average person, but uh, it, it's what's driving sea level rise. And when you think about the billions of people that live in um, mm. low-lying coastal areas, yeah. um, it will suddenly become clear why the Arctic and the Greenland ice sheets and the Antarctic uh, are important. Um, when, when the sea level rise reaches uh, what it was the last time the global temperature was this warm, which was six to nine meters above the current sea level. So um, the potential for um, significant sea level rise because of this melting ice is, is very, very significant. I mean, this, again, might be stupid, but is there a balance here that actually if, if the oceans are getting warmer and the ice caps melt, will that volume of water cool the oceans down or is it, does it not work like that? No, it doesn't really work like that. The, the big That's driver, a shame, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, would, it would be nice. Uh, you know, put a little ice in it. It's like yeah. cooling your drink on a hot summer day. Unfortunately, the oceans are very, very big, uh, and they can uh, the the forcing, as we call it, uh, from the greenhouse gas emissions is is overwhelming uh, by many, many orders of magnitude. The amount of cooling we're getting from the ice melting. I'm feeling slightly depressed here. Okay, I always try and feel positive that we can make a difference. What can we do about this? I mean, you, you said that at the beginning that maybe we're, it's a bit too late, which would be terrifying because you know, the ecosystem of, you know, having seen it with my own eyes, coral reefs are incredible, but it's not just that. It's kind of, you know, my partner, she's from Italy and you go down to Italy now in the summer, last summer was ridiculously hot, but it meant masses of jellyfish. So you couldn't even swim in the sea because of these algal, these blooms of jellyfish that were, that were going nuts. You've got things like people saying seagrasses are going out of control in certain areas. So things are changing. And obviously it affects people like fishermen, particularly in poorer nations in the developing world where the, you know, the, the stocks are, are being affected. I know your, your report will be part of what goes to, to COP26 later this year in Egypt, but what is there that can be done right now? Because obviously we're all talking about it. We're all saying that we're going to do things and there's a lot of talk and frankly a lot of bullshit going on out there but what you've just laid out for us today is is quite frightening is there anything that can be done right now is there any action that governments can take or even we as individuals can take to try and stop some of this yeah uh, absolutely very important um, that these kinds of measures start to be undertaken and um you know very rapidly so uh, the main thing that needs to be done is to reach what uh, we refer to as net zero, meaning um, with respect to um, emissions that the emissions of the greenhouse gases are balanced by the uptake of the greenhouse gases uh, or removal of greenhouse gases yeah. from the atmosphere so that we're not driving the warming and all of these other changes with more and more emissions. And so that can be done um, with the transformation of the energy system, for example, to um, reliance on renewables rather than on fossil fuels. So there's an enormous potential for investment in renewable energy systems and de-investment from um, fossil fuels. 
that would would address the biggest single contribution um, to to the emissions um, currently. And and that's obviously the the, the raison d'etre for this podcast and what we do. But we're looking at you know the the ambitious target of twenty fifty. People don't think we're going to make that. That's kind of you know twenty five thirty years where you're looking at that. But from what you're saying, it sounds like it, we're in we're in deep, frankly, crap right now. I mean, I mean, do we stop fishing? Like, is there anything that we can do immediately, like to stop the pollution that's going into the sea? Or are these just basically what we're looking at is, is if even if it's 10, 15 years, we're buying ourselves maybe 100 years or 200 years down the line if we can do it. How do you see it? Yeah, no, it's it's definitely a kind of a race uh, against time but it's a race that we can't stop running. <laughs> so yeah. how late is too late is, is a moving target because um, you know it would have been nice if when all of this was um, first understood back in the 1980s, there had been a, a major effort at that point but here we are 40 years later, um, you know, does that mean, you know, we should just give up? No, because in 40 years from now, it will be, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the climate that we have will be a result of what we did uh, currently. So um, it, it's all, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ongoing process, and, um, but now it's becoming really um, critically urgent. So the, the uh, you know, one of the paradoxes of it is that, um, you know, you could go live in a cave and, you know, at great uh, and really, you know, great experience a considerable hardship and it wouldn't make a bit of difference. But uh, if if everybody did that, it, it would make a, a huge difference. So, yeah, it's a, a thing that um, requires collective action. And, and this is where governments and um, large uh, multinational um, private sector uh, entities um, really need to step up because they have the the reach, you know, the 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 scope to to start putting these measures in, in place. And the public needs to do its part by reducing consumption and and going green on a personal level, but also putting pressure on these you know societal entities um, that that uh, to get them to, to to take action as well because. Business as usual is really um, taking us off uh, over a cliff. I mean, um, business yeah. as usual yeah. is not going to cut it. So um, we need we need pretty dramatic um, shifts um, and and quickly. Before we end, just looking at kind of the, the the major things about that we've discussed, is there are there any quick fixes? For example, c- could we just say right? Actually, you know, there are things like protected sea parks in terms of kind of areas of the ocean that the world is trying to protect and people looking at kind of stopping certain types of fishing does any of that help or are we really looking at this is basically the system change which is let's stop putting all that crap out there and 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 try and reduce that but are there kind of short-term kind of you know stopping pollution trying to cut down fishing are those things things that could help any of this Absolutely. Um, We've been talking about the climate, but uh, when we look at the earth as a a kind of an ecosystem holistically, uh, we, uh, humanity, have overshot the earth's carrying capacity by something on the order of about 40%. It's not just because of um, greenhouse gas emissions, um, you know, deforestation, overuse of resources, um, uh, you know, soil and water degradation, all of these things, of course, um, are, are degrading the, the ecosystem. 
And it's very important um, that across all of those um, fronts, you know, reducing, eliminating plastic going into the ocean. There's more plastic in the ocean right now than there is biomass, which is a pretty shocking statistic. So uh, all of these measures are needed um, to bring the, the the to have a sustainable um, uh, sustainable planet that uh, we would we would want to live in. What do you hope will come out of your report being presented at COP? And, and what's next in terms of the work that the WMO is doing? The conference of party meetings are, are very important. Um, without them, we wouldn't have the Paris Agreement. And without the Paris Agreement, we wouldn't have a globally agreed target to try to limit the warming to between uh, one and a half to two degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels. So um, these negotiations have been important and WMO and our annual reports are, are a bit like the global thermometer. We report along with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, what the state of the climate is, what is the global mean temperature, um, what is the, uh, the sea level and, and all the things we've been talking about. So um, this plays an important role in the negotiating process because it informs the parties to, uh, to the uh, Paris Agreement and to the UNFCCC um, on the aggregate effects uh, of, of their collective efforts. But the negotiations are just that, they're negotiations. What really matters is what actually happens um, uh, you know, in, in terms of um, policies and in terms of um, emissions reduction efforts in terms of transformation uh, of energy systems and um, all of these other things. So um, negotiations, yes, agreements, yes, but uh, action is uh, what's really needed. I hope it's not too late, Max. We all do. Yeah. Do you know what? I think it's 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 a sobering one, and it's one that, but it's I think it's such a vital thing that we don't really think enough about what's going on in our oceans. Uh, Max, thank you so much for joining us on the Net Hero podcast. And I really hope that, you know, politicians, businesses uh, will be pushing it out there, but they need, they need to listen to what scientists like you are saying. So thank you for joining us today. You're welcome, Sumit. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Max there from the World Meteorological Organization. And I think it was a bit depressing. <laughs> you can't get away from the science, but the positivity at the end is that, you know, we can do it, we can make a difference if we can get to net zero and the planetary systems, particularly our oceans, will recover. So keep an eye on, on, on any news you see around the oceans because they are vital for our weather systems and the health of our planet. Uh, before I go, thank you very much. We've hit 10,000 downloads, which is amazing. So uh, many thanks to all of you for subscribing. It's brilliant. Please keep doing so. Please keep sharing the podcast. And I'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to this future Net Zero podcast. Please follow us on social media and subscribe to the website at www.futurenetzero.com. Future Net Zero. Better business, better planet.